Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, financial institutions. As is usually the case in this class, we are going to have a look at the numbers to start the, to start our time together as a happy family, or something like that. Uh, bear with me. Really? Okay. There are the numbers. Isn't that interesting? Huh. Start Start this out. Okay. Uh, sir, bull or bear day? Bull. Bull. Yeah, you gotta say it forcefully. Bull. Bull. Bull, yes, yeah. Uh, is it a big bull or is it a or a moo? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of in the middle. Uh, it's not a huge update, but it is definitely because you see a broad-based, as we say, a broad-based rally. That's, that's a good sign there. It seems like all the boats are rising. Interestingly, both the Dow and the S&P 500, Dow 30 and the S&P 500, rose by the same percentage. So apparently the good news had about the same impact on all ginormous companies. Then if you go over, you see the NASDAQ, of course, smaller companies, they went up more. And that's, that's not unusual at all. They'll go up more, down more than the big dogs will because they've got so many of the small companies in those. Now, interestingly enough, crude oil is still playing in that band of a band around um, between 72 and 82. It's probably not going to do anything spectacular. Right now, the, the big thing, supply of oil is going to stay fairly cons constant unless we have some problem in the Middle East. It, we've got supply. The, the big player right now is demand for oil. One of the one thing that was has been a little surprising since the lockdown has been the lower demand for gasoline. We were of the mind that, okay, when the lockdown stops, everyone's going to jump in a car and drive like blind trout everywhere. It really hasn't happened. So we're seeing the demand stable at a relatively low level compared to what we would have expected. But we do see some fluctuation in the demand for other uh, products, uh, hydrocarbon products, the distillates like diesel and jet fuel and uh, kerosene. Now, the supply of those is staying fairly constant. We've got that leveled out. So I would not expect a huge amount of movement in crude oil prices in at least the short, shorter term. The, everything is quiet. The demand and supply conditions seem to be fairly stable. That can always be thrown off, though, if we have supply chain disruptions from Middle East conflict or 
well, the Iranian-Russian uh, conflict, that's already, <coughs> that supply situation, as bad or as good as it is, has now sorted itself out. We just get less from those Resource, those sources, and it will probably won't go down anymore. And for the foreseeable future, it's certainly not going to go up. Uh, so this is a stable market. Now, the reason I'm saying this to you is, one, I don't talk down. In a class like this, you're professionals, and this is how we think about problems. And notice how I, we think globally about the conditions of supply and demand dynamics, and that even when we're talking about stocks, we have to think macroeconomically about microeconomic issues in some cases. And we'll talk more about that today and for the rest of the uh, course, just getting that thinking so that you're being critical and you're being objective. You're not letting your personal feelings and opinions or your politics enter into the game at all. The truth be told, Politics can look scary sometimes, but actually its impact on a level of investment or corporate strategies and choices is not all that scary. It's fairly stable. Behind the scenes are a lot of technocrats, bureaucrats, and even members of Congress who make idiotic statements and bluster and fart they really do know what they are doing behind the curtain, at least almost as much as they used to. We've got a few more crazies these days, but there's that. Gold and silver, they, uh, both of them had a little bit of a spike. You notice that gold it got a little excited there, but it's still well below that neckline of $2,000 an ounce. And it probably won't go towards that unless some apocalyptic event happens. But going over here, 10-year bonds. Now, the yield is down. The yield's down 2.7 basis points. That means the price has gone up. The price would be going up because there is demand for bonds. Investors are throwing some money at bonds. Now, interestingly enough, they're throwing money at stocks, too. So it looks like a little bit of the, that purse string tightness that's been there ever since COVID, even before COVID, is loosening. There's still a lot of money on the sidelines, but the money that's going in is going in long. In other words, the word long, again, that means you're going in buying. You're bullish. So the money that's going in is going in long, and it's going in in equities, stocks, and it's going in in bonds. So there's that. Good news for you. The economy, we, we're we pretty sure, we're not absolutely sure, but we're pretty sure we dodged the bullet of a recession. And so that's good news for stocks, good news for you, because we are going to be out there getting internships and career uh, jobs, that means there will be a decent market. The market is still pretty hot for uh, professionals these days. Uh, but you still have to go out there and try to get a job. Now, talking about last night, Nikkei had a surge at the beginning of its trading day. Uh, you see that rise, the spark chart pulled upward. And then it actually, after that punch of information, there was no information to push it either way, up or down, so it just drifted. It's a classic uh, application of Newtonian physics. 
for uh, you know in the laws of physics, uh, for every you know a an object in mo- in straight line motion will tend to stay in straight line motion unless acted upon by a by some force, and that's what we see in stock markets. There's a force; it'll push it up or down. Once that force is gone, it'll just keep going in a straight line, the way spaceships do. You accelerate a spaceship by putting thrust into it. You decelerate it by pushing thrust the other way. So if there's no additional force, it'll just stay in a straight line. That's what you're seeing happening with the Nikkei. There was a little bit of a bull, a tiny bit of bullish buying there at the end. And then the sun set and it rolled over to Europe and it came up in London and there was a smooth upward roll for most of the morning and into the afternoon. And then there was a sell-off, and I don't know what that was about, but it slid back down. It never really went, well, it did tiny bit. And then there was a little tick of a rally at the end. Come over here to the United States, the sunset in London, and rolled across the Atlantic, and it came up here. And we had actually a chop. Do you see how that choppy that day was? Just keep an eye on things like that. Begin to notice the details of these markets. You don't need some investment guru or some talking head to tell you. You can just look at this and say, well, interesting. There was a, f- a war of kind of ups and downs, bulls and bears taking their turns in a smackdown through the day. It wasn't anything huge, just ups and downs. See how it started up a little bit, and then there was a sell-off. Then the bulls came back, and then the bears came, and then the bulls are coming in at the end. Are we clo- Is the market closed for the day? I don't even know what time it is right now. Uh, what the heck time is it? No, we still got some time left uh, on the clock. But... You know where it ends. It's probably going to end on a good, on a positive, from where it began. But who can, who's to say? Now let me take you over here for a little bit. Look at a few stocks, see what's going on, and find out if there's anything worth buying or whatever. Anyone got a stock? Don't say Tesla. Anyone got a stock you're interested in? Hmm? Well, and <laughs> Nvidia. Now this one, NVDA. Well, that'll put some starch in your boxers. Okay, it's up for the day. That's a decent up. But let's have a look here. First of all, just to harp on the uh, old time gospel, if you wanted to buy, what the hell? Those numbers, those numbers are off. That can't be happening. I'm going to ignore the bid and ask. We'll do that for another. Volume today. Oh, look at that. The volume is stronger than the 52-week average. And we're not even at the end today. So NVIDIA on a typical day over the last year, 52.8 million shares traded. So far today... 66.7 million have traded. So this is an active day for NVIDIA. There must be news. Uh, oh, someone went to China. Big deal. Who knows? Okay, well, one way or the other. That's, there, something is got, has got the bulls interested in this. Now, just a holy cow. 
The market cap on, on NVIDIA is $1.16 trillion. I mean, that's a lot of money by anyone's standards. Okay, the beta, first of all, let's talk about the beta. Is uh, Okay, what's this? Is this a risky or a not risky stock? Risky. Very risky. This is this is almost nosebleed risky. It's not Tesla risky, but that's definitely risky. Now, overvalued or undervalued? What say you? Overvalued. Yes, it is def. I mean, a lot overvalued. I mean, this one, uh, uh, this one has already run off the cliff and hasn't noticed that there's a lot of space to the ground yet. That is wild. Now, the next one. Let's try this. Is NVIDIA profitable or unprofitable? Not sure. Look at EPS. Is it positive or negative? Positive. Price to earnings ratio is price divided by earnings. So obviously the price is positive. So, uh, so the earnings there are a positive number. In other words, you take the total earnings divided by the number of shares. If that's a positive number, well then you've got a stock that is uh, profitable. This is a profitable company. Now, redeem yourself, madam. Do they pay a dividend or not? <laughs> you said that. Was that a guess or do you know? Okay. The dividend is, they pay, a, I mean, that dividend is pretty, I mean, that's a lousy dividend. 0.03% per share. Big whoop. I got a $16, a 16 cent check in the mail. I mean, that's, they pay a dividend, okay? Give them credit for that. You know, the old saying, when a donkey talks, you don't correct its grammar right away. It, it is paying a dividend. It's not spectacular. This is a risky stock, overvalued. It pays a piss-poor dividend. So there you go. That, that, that's, that's where it stands right now. It is definitely... If I were a recommending investing, I would not do this. I, I don't have time to, to suffer like that in this life. It is a volatile stock. You put this in a well-diversified diversified portfolio, and it's going to still bounce around like gangbusters. Let me take you to another one. Let's try um, Johnson & Johnson. What is going on with these bid and asks? Those are not, those are lies. See, the bid is supposed to be lower than the ask. It's, 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 oh well, anyway, I'm not gonna, I, I'm fussing. Now, notice, interestingly enough, okay, first of all, Johnson & Johnson. Is this a risky or a not risky stock, sir? Uh, no, it's only about half of the volatility of the world portfolio. If yeah, in a well-diversified portfolio, this is going to go up and down on average only about half as much as the market, the world will in terms of stocks. So it's not risky. Now, P/E ratio on this on this guy, the uh, P/E ratio. Madam, what would you say on the P.E. ratio? Is this overvalued or undervalued or meh? Overvalued. A little tiny bit. Now, when you're within a few numbers of 30, 
you pretty much say, well, there's, it may be a little overvalued, but there's no play on it. That's what I would say on this one. But you're, technically, you're correct. Uh, so, and that's why I chose this one specifically was because you're not looking for exact numbers. You're looking for ranges of numbers uh, because markets are so nasty in their volatility that number is going to pop around a little bit on any given day. So now, as you can see, the company is profitable. Uh, it's got positive EPS. I want to point out something. I think I already said this, but if the EPS is negative, no PE will be reported. No price earnings ratio will be reported. That's just, I mean, you'd be divided by a negative number and what, how you interpret that. So this is a profitable company. It pays a nice dividend. I mean, that's a decent dividend. Even if the stock goes nowhere, you're going to pay, uh, put $164.29 in this stock and you will not be guaranteed, but you'll be reasonably assured that you'll get a return of at least 2.86%. Uh, you can't even get that at a bank. Now, dividends are not guaranteed, but companies try their best not to deviate with their dividends too much. And so uh, we, we can say, yeah, this is one that would be for a conservative investor. This is more of a kind of like a fixed income stock. That beta is telling me that you're not going to make a lot of money off the stock price going up, but you're going to make a, you're going to get a fixed income, a dividend check every year or every quarter or whatever, however they pay it. So this is more of maybe an older uh, household's uh, stock, a company that was investing pension money. From its uh, from its uh, employees, this is one of those kinds of stocks that you're looking to for more of a, uh, a less risky kind of investment. Now, moving over here, let me pull you up on Uber. Uber is losing its ass. It's not profitable. So, see, there's no PE ratio on it. See that? If the if the if the earnings are negative. Uh, total or per share, then PE re ratio will not be reported. That's worrisome right there. I don't have that number to give me guidance. And then I see the beta. It's a risky stock. It's not profitable. And it doesn't pay a dividend, for God's sake. So this is one that, I mean, yeah, if you want to take a shot, you got some money, mad money to throw away. You know, you can lose it. That's this might be something for you if you're a big Uber fan, but otherwise, this might be something that a prudent investor might leave for someone else to uh, put in. Okay, that's just you know my own uh, judgment on that. And as like I said, and I said this the first day, in professional work, whether it's finance or any other field, you're well, except for marketing, maybe you're playing for the long game. You're not looking to make a big hit in the next day or a couple of weeks. You're holding on through the bad and the good, and at the end, looking to have a positive outcome to the efforts that your company is making or that you are making in, in your investments. So that's what we do here, and I would look at this and I would say, 
this is not a play that I would be doing for the short run. One more, just to keep this going. Uh, XOM. Finally, a bid ask that is normal. Okay, the bid, what you would sell the stock at, if you had a share, you could get $108. If you wanted to buy a share, you'd pay $109.45. So the bid ask on this is a rather steep $1.45. That I mean, the stock, it's a high-priced stock. It's a relatively high-priced stock. So, yeah, you're going to have, the bid-ask spread will normally be bigger than $0.10, cents, $0.05. Cents. But in this case, that is actually a pretty wide bid-ask spread on this stock. And notice the volume for the day is only about half as much as it has been on the average day. This is a stock... Apparently, there's nothing interesting about this stock right now. So the market is kind of eh on it for the time being. Players aren't throwing money at it. Now, if you look at this, the beta is a little above 1.00. It's not enough above, I'd say it's a risky stock, but it's a little bit more. But what's really noticeable about this one, first of all, this is hella profitable. The earnings per share, this company has earned for the shareholders $12.50. That's, that's a lot, that's a, that's a high earnings per share. Now, if you look up here at PE ratio, that is really undervalued. This company has a lot of room to the upside to reach back to intrinsic. So, for, take that for what it's worth. But this is a stock, if you want to take about as much risk as the world economy, and you want something that's undervalued, I mean, and it pays a darn nice dividend. Look at that. 3.36%. Even if the stock price doesn't go up, your $109.16 is going to earn you 3.36%. Uh, so that's decent right there. This is a stock that might be kind of a mild buy signal. You're going to get a dividend, whatever happens. The stock is undervalued right now, and it's not much riskier than the world portfolio. So there you are. Not, uh, that one's a, a better message as far as an investment goes. One last one. Johnson & Johnson. If you want to buy the stock, it's going to cost you $164.30 a share. If you want to sell it, you're going to get a little less, $164.01. The stock is actually kind of like almost right in the middle of its 52-week range. And notice that 52-week range isn't that big over the last year. Huh. It looks pretty darn volatile. It's not really that. But anyway, um, notice the beta. Super safe. Moving only about 54% of the world portfolio on average if it's in a well-diversified portfolio. And that's because it is 
a company that produces more necessities, medical supplies, stuff like that, uh, consumer products, and those are the kind of things that people buy and come and hospitals buy, whether there are good times or bad times. So it's relatively robust, as we say, to the business cycle. PE ratio is about normal. Did I just do this one? It looks familiar, but one way or the other. Okay, enough of that. And I bring up, and I'm going to leave the screens up there. I'm going to come back to the main screen because this is about financial institutions. And I, before I do much else, I want to distinguish between money and capital. I think I already did this, but let me emphasize it. Money is short-term funds, a year or less. Capital is long-term funds, more than a year. Sometimes you'll see me, I'll accidentally use the word capital when I mean money, or money when I mean capital. But we try to keep a careful distinction give you an example. In my own business, I will finance people's purchases of my products, of my art. And they can pay all of it, $800 piece, they can pay it all right away. That would be a spot transaction, paying what the current price is. But they can also, with my relationship with PayPal, they could also give me, let's say, 200 and then they could finance with PayPal the other 600. And PayPal would say, you uh, make equal installments for the, for the next six months. That would be my buyers accessing a money market, a financial institution that specializes in money market transactions. That would be six months. On the other hand, in there, and by the way, let me make this clear. Huge companies access money markets all the time for very short-term borrowings. There is a vast ocean of billions and billions of dollars that transacts on what are, what's called commercial paper. Now, commercial paper is a 30-day loan. Let's say Microsoft need, needed $20 million for 30 days. Well, what they would do is they would issue commercial paper. It's a, like a promissory note. Whoever buys this, we shall give you $30 million back, or $20 million back in 30 days. That's commercial paper. That, in other words, they are accessing a vast money market to get their money. At the same time, I'm right now. I, I'm teaching a course in short-term uh, cash manage in cash management, short-term financial uh, management. Now, in that world, a company, let's say, oh, I'm trying to think. Uh, you, madam, you are the chief financial officer in the treasury of a corporation. You just got in. A, your department just got in, some company had paid a bill to you, 
Okay, now, you, you say, well, we've got accounts payable. We need that. And you say, not for a while. When are those accounts payable due? End of the year. Yeah, something like that. Well, you say, kiss my ass. I'm not going to pay that bill now. You're going to take that $25,000 and you're going to put it into money markets, into a money market account where it will earn scratch. And then you can pull it out when you need to actually pay the bill. That's the whole game. And in a way, it's interestingly enough, the, uh, it's like the payables are spontaneously financing your company to the tune of $25,000. And that's what we actually call it. We call it spontaneous financing. When you don't pay a bill, they, they, that place that, oh, that you owe the money to is spontaneously financing you. Not spontaneously, it doesn't mean to, it's just how it works. In effect, they are lending you money for a while, which is kind of nice. As a matter of fact, there are some companies, they have to be huge companies to do it, but there are some companies that have a cash management policy where basically their entire uh, top of their balance sheet is being financed by their suppliers. They have what's called a negative cash conversion cycle. It's, it's fascinating. Walmart's one of them, where they can actually create all of their financing for the short term from their suppliers. And the suppliers might not like it, but they have to do it if they want to play the game with Walmart. It, it, it's kind of fun, uh, interesting that way. Now, that's the money market. Now, you might also tap the money market. Uh, uh, you, sir. I know you go to payday loans, two, two weeks, and then you, get, you pay them in two weeks. You know, that's the kind of thing. That's a money market. And these are all over the place, and they are just staggering billions of dollars flowing through. An interesting version of this, now I don't know if they've taught you this in another class. Have any of you ever heard of sweeps? A sweep? It works like this. Suppose that you're a small business, or any business. It's a retail business. So at the end of the day, you go to your cash register, cha-ching, and you take out the money, and you take it to the bank, and you put it in. Now, you're not going to need that money until you go back there tomorrow to get it back out for your day's operations. Well, it could just sit there looking stupid, but most banks now offer sweeps where as soon as the end of the day well let's say right here in our part of the country ends the business day they sweep your money out with millions of other accounts and they put it into the global liquidity market and it becomes the vast ocean of money that is there for all kinds of operations, trading, uh, financing overnight. And then when the sun comes back up here, they sweep it back into your account so you have it back for when you need it the next day. And then this is constantly being filled up as the sun goes down someplace, and then it's being drawn back out as the sun is coming back up someplace else. So it's like a bladder with a pipe going in and a pipe going out. At any given time, both are active, but the bladder itself is full of liquidity. 
a global money market available to all of the traders, businesses, players all over the world all the time, 24-7. That's our world that we live in. And almost no one would know about that. There's another market called the repo and reverse repo market. It's weird. You would think, how, how, what is this? Where, let's say that I'm the Federal Reserve. And what I want to do is I want to change the amount of money in the economy. So what I'll do is, I'll, you'll say to me, I am going to sell you my treasury bill. With, I have some treasury bills in my bank vault. You say to me, the Fed, I'm going to sell you one of my treasury bills. Okay? And then I, you want the right to buy it back 24 hours later. Okay? That'll work. So essentially the money, uh, the treasury bill comes to me and I give you money overnight. And then in the next day, I sell it back to you. That is a repo. And it actually causes a change. As long as we keep doing this and we increase it every day or we decrease the, uh, the activity every day, I can change the money supply through this insane open market operation. How much are we talking? Staggering billions of dollars at any given time in the repo and reverse repo market. And I mean, after, at first when I heard about this, I, I was like, how the hell? And I had to think about it for a while. But yeah, it drains money out or adds money, and then it changes course and does it opposite. So in effect, there is no net change over the total of 24 hours. But within that 24 hours, there's this, this thing happens. Okay, so that's money markets. Just to give you an idea of how active that world is. Now, the capital markets. And this is where the story gets interesting and a little weird in some places at times. But you're going to learn something I'll bet you don't know today. Now, this is all about financial institution. But now, in the world of financial institutions, there are commercial banks. You put your money in there, and you have yeah, a checking account. Oh, um, things like that, business borrows money from a commercial bank. It's sort of like the all-purpose bank that you know of. Some of them are very small, some of them are very large. But let's try this. You, madam, uh, you have a checking account at a bank. Now, this has to be a bank. This can't be a credit union. That's a, something's different about them. But you've got a checking account at my bank. Okay, so you write a check to this person right here. Now, she can come in and demand that I honor your check. You wrote her a check for $100. She can come in and I must honor it with proper identification immediately. In other words, this check, this draft, 
is on demand. It has as much, almost as much liquidity as cash itself. Now that we have debit cards, they have exactly as much liquidity as cash. These are demand deposits. That, and they fill up the coffers of banks. That's one of their primary things, is to provide demand, depo demand accounts. Now, I distinguish between a commercial bank and a credit union. There is a difference that you will probably never notice but it actually is there. Let's say you wrote a check to her for, on, you've got a credit union. You wrote a check from your credit union to her for $100. She comes to me, the credit union. Now I'll probably say, why sure, let me see your ID and I give you the $100. But I don't have to. Technically, credit unions have not demand accounts, they have negotiable order of withdrawal accounts, now accounts. Negotiable order of withdrawal accounts, now accounts. I can hold, I can say, I shall pay you, I shall give you your $100 on her account in two weeks. And you say, well, you son of a dog, what do you mean? And I say, it's not a demand account, I don't have to. Now, almost always they will, especially if it's a smaller amount of money. It appears to be just like a demand account, but technically it isn't. It can be, the liquidity is not perfect like it is with a, um, with a demand account at a bank. So that is a big difference. It's big in some cases, but it's not big in other cases. Credit unions try to appear to be banks as much as possible. And they are very popular and they're very good. We have a credit union associated with the university. And they, I mean, I was surprised because it used to be credit unions couldn't do business accounts. That was a restriction. Now. They let me have an account that's completely separate from me for my company. And that was a big help to me some years back when they, when they started doing that. Okay, now those are credit unions. Now I'm going to go to a very different kind of financial institution. In this case, we're going to talk about financial institutions that deal in long-term funds, capital. And I'll start with, with kind of a realistic example. Uh, you, madam, are Mark Zuckerberg. You don't look nearly as dweeby as he does, does but we'll, we'll play, we'll work with it. I am an investment bank. Now, if you were just a normal, average, everyday person, you came to me, I'd like to put some money in, I'd say go away. <laughs> Security, clean up an aisle eight. But you're Mark Zuckerberg and you say, I want to take Facebook public. I want to raise $2 billion by selling stock in an initial public offering. 
an IPL. Okay, I'm game. <coughs> I get together my other investment bankers and we form a syndicate. That's what it's called. Okay, we've got Facebook. We're going to work out how many shares this would be to raise $2 billion, figuring out what the intrinsic price per share might be and all that kind of stuff. Work through all the laws, make the filings. You're going to have to do it an ungodly process. And I've done, I did it um, several times when I was a consultant many years ago. I can't do it now. It would be illegal for me to do it now. But you make filings with the SEC. The SEC, and this is ungodly, huge amount of paperwork. The investment bankers, you have their lawyers and accountants go through all of that. They make the filings. And I'll talk about that more in the next lecture. But right now, trust me, it is a hell to go through. You will also have to make filings with state divisions of securities in the states where you will offer and sell the securities. But going back to the main thing, we're going to work it out. And I'm going to give you a firm underwriting. What that means is I am going to buy that stock from you. This isn't, you're not, you will never participate in an IPO, probably. Because the IPO, that stock will be bought by, by the investment bankers. They will buy it, then they will hype the hell out of it, and then they will sell it to you. You are not going to participate in the primary offering. Anytime you buy stock, anything you see on the screens, that is a secondary market transaction. That is just investors buying and selling from each other. The primary market is where capital, capital is raised by the company. Now the primary market, the laws governing that are under the Securities Act of 1933. The Laws that govern the secondary market are a different law. They fall under set of laws. They fall under the Securities Exchange Act. Of nineteen thirty-four. And these are always being amended and added to and changed with uh, changing markets finding loopholes companies might be playing with and all that. Before these 1930s, the stock markets were and bond markets were a wild west of liars, cheaters, grifters, con men. It was just awful. And it finally, after three consecutive conservative administrations in Washington, President and Congress, it finally just, uh, in, we were in the 20th century and it finally just buckled in, uh, on, uh, in 1929 with, black, with the black uh, day, with the black swan that happened. 
So we're now in the era where they are watched and there are laws governing everything. And I'll talk a little bit about it. I don't want you to be getting a law course. But there are some things that might be worth you knowing about these. Especially ways that you can raise... If you're going to raise money as a corporation, you darn well better know a little bit about the Securities Act of 1933. Or you could end up, like some of my clients did, doing something that in two cases sent people to prison and fined them so much their lives were just destroyed. So it's worth it for you to know about offers and sales of securities uh, and what exemptions there are. We'll talk about that later, but I don't want to blow too much at you at once. Back to the IPO. Yeah, the investment banking syndicate buys the primary issue. Only later do they hype it, pump it up, pay the talking heads and the bloggers and the, all that kind of stuff to hype the stock. That's when they sell it to you, once they've pumped it. But they aren't, uh, but, so you aren't the ones. You never buy, you never bought Facebook stock from Facebook. Almost no one would ever buy stock from the company itself. They would buy it through the investment banking process, where the investment syndicate, uh, investment banking syndicate, underwrites, in other words, guarantees to buy the original issue. Now, IPOs aren't the only thing. I should mention IPO would be the first time a company sells stock to raise capital. Notice I'm saying capital. This is long-term funds. You can also have companies that do seasoned offerings. In other words, they're selling stock again later. There are a lot of companies that raise extra capital. They've already got stock. They're a public company. And they just sell more stock to raise money. That's a seasoned offering. Okay? But these investment banks, they're not normal banks. I have several students, former students, who are working in IB, in, in investment banking up in Chicago, and one in New York City. And uh, it's, it's, God, the money is good in this. But it's also intense, because you're not only trying to figure out what the price is that is right for selling the stock, but you also have to make sure that it all remains legal. You can't do anything, like you can't talk about an IPO hardly at all until the SEC has qualified the offering. Remember I said government never approves. The best you get from the government in any circumstance is qualification. Now, before the qualification of the offering, you have got to keep your pie hole shut. Famous story out of, um, this was out of New York City, that a corporate, uh, I guess it was one of the corporate attorneys or something, he had coffee and a little bit of light lunch with a company that was planning an IPO. And they were right scratching out numbers on napkins and, you know, just to, some preliminary paperwork. And so they finished their lunch, left. The waitress picked up the napkins. And later she, when it did go public, she personally jumped in. Uh, 
in some way, she got in on the primary or really close on the secondary. And the SEC found out about it. And the company was punished massively because the SEC said, you had provided the public with a defective, it wasn't complete, prospectus. All the money of the offering had to be returned, fines, threats of jail sentences, you name it. So we have to be so careful. If I hear about a company that's about to go public, and I have heard about two recently, I can't say hardly anything about them. I, I, I'm so paranoid, I wouldn't even tell you their names because I'm too pretty to go to prison. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's how it is. That's how rough it is. Now, in the same kind of vein, now we're getting to stocks and bonds. Now, remember, companies can raise capital through selling stock. They can also raise capital by selling bonds. That's a fancy way of saying they're borrowing money. A company borrows, a corporation borrows money by issuing bonds. So either one could be used to raise capital. Now, let's talk about that market where the secondary market. Financial institutions, brokerage houses. Now, when I go into this, I'm going to start with a preliminary definition. These are words, I'm sure you've heard all three of them. And I'm going to turn the screw and tighten those definitions just a little bit here. Agent, broker, and dealer. Now, this isn't just about stocks and bonds. This is the technical, legal terminology. An agent represents a seller. An agent represents a seller. So if you have a real estate agent, that agent is representing the seller. A broker represents the buyer. So if you have a stockbroker that you work with, he represents your interest in stock purchases. That's his or her job, is to represent the buyer. So a brokerage house is kind of, in a sense, a, a buying house. They'll sell, too. So there's an agency in there as well. Okay. Now, a dealer represents itself. Heard of about, about a car dealer? car dealer doesn't represent the car companies, the sellers. That'd be a car agent. Car dealer doesn't represent you. That'd make him a broker. A car dealer represents the house. Now, interestingly enough, when you buy and sell stocks, you will work oftentimes with a broker. However, interestingly enough, that broker to buy that stock or sell that stock might very well work with a dealer. A literally a place on the floor of an exchange where there is a company of some kind that has an inventory of a bunch of different stocks and they're playing for their own hand on the floor of the exchange. They have to pay a, a fee for floor space and meet all these requirements, capital requirements and all that. But so if you do a transaction, it seems like it's lightning fast these days. But 
it actually will probably go from a broker to a dealer and then you'll get a trade confirmation or whatever. So that gives you an idea of how complex it is behind the scenes. Now, interestingly enough, I'll tell you a story about broke, uh, I, uh, investment bankers. I, uh, six or seven years ago, uh, I took my finance students up to Chicago to meet some prospective employers, get into the world of finance and all that kind of stuff. And we had a, uh, I had an opportunity to have a presentation at a regional uh, in IB. It's a big place. I mean, they got offices all over the country. But it was, it, even at that, we call it regional because it was smaller than the monster houses. Okay, uh, so, okay, we, we went in there and we had one of the top, more or less, kind of a high up official do the presentation. Did a darn good presentation. But, and, and the students were very attentive, very excited about it because, you know, jobs and all that and knowing more about the industry. But I got this feeling, the more the guy was talking, he was talking about buying and selling stocks and analyzing companies, classic investment analysis. And then I figured it out. Oh, he's not on the IB side. You see, investment banks have in-house brokerages where they play for, you know, buy and sell stocks. And that was what he did. He was a specialist in one type of one type of company, but yeah, they make money. They run their own little brokerage houses. Now, I, uh, something I should bring up here real quick: retail. A lot of brokerage houses you would think of are retail houses. They are just buying and selling for you know, typical investors. They might be small, really small time. They might be big dog types. But retail, like for example, you come to me and you say, I want to get into this world. I want to, I want to do stock trading, okay? Where I probably try to get you an in would be with a place up like TD Ameritrade, something like that. They're retail. And of course you'd start <laughs> level one, you'd be on the phone constantly having idiots who should not be buying and selling stocks calling in and screaming and crying because they'd lost their asses or they didn't understand why their why the statements said what they did. And you know, that's where it starts. You're dealing with the normal kind of investor. That's retail. Now there are other versions here too, a few other terms, just in case you are interested in this world. There are houses we would call boutique. Boutiques are small, but they cater to a very wealthy, small clientele base. They are more difficult to get a join. And you're usually, it's being run by people who are not Particularly, particularly the nicest owners. A lot of times these boutique houses start with a giant amount of capital. Some guy 50 years ago made with sheer luck uh, in it, and then he was with the rich crowd, and they started taking care of rich people's money and all that kind of stuff. 
I took my students up to a boutique house near Chicago. Uh, if I recall, it was in Wheaton. I'm not sure about that, though. But I mean, it was, it, they obviously it was just maybe uh, 500 invest, uh, investors, rich, how, rich people, and that was all they did was handle their money, buying and selling stocks for their portfolio. That's a boutique house. Uh, another one, I told you about that investment bank uh, that had the brokerage side. That would be probably called a house, a house bank or an in-house brokerage. All they do is for their own house. They don't do outside clients' money at all in those kinds of banks. And, and you know, that was where this guy was, and he was making staggering money. I mean, I, his um, daughter, who I knew, described a bonus that was, I think, 10 times my annual salary, just a bonus. And he was the one, one of the students asked him, he said, so how often are you right when you make investment uh, recommendations for the house? And he just, he got this smile on his face, and he said, Right now, I'm running at 35% of the time I'm right. So in other words, he was 65% of the time wrong. And he's saying, wait a minute, how? Well, when he was right, he was very right. When he was wrong, he wasn't all that wrong. So he made the house a huge amount of money, and so he got nice giant bonuses every year. So anyway, there's a life for you. I'm sure some of you probably want to make a lot of money. I don't know. You might want to correct me on that. Anyway, it's brokerage houses. Now, there are other financial institutions you wouldn't even think of as financial institutions. Pension funds and life insurance companies. Now, pension funds get premiums from all the employees in a company or in a state agency or whatever. Every month, they have to put that money somewhere. And they have to put that money somewhere so that when these people retire, they will get a nice check every month for the rest of their elderly lives. Now, these are in great danger right now. You've probably heard a little bit about some pension funds that are uh, insolvent. Five to ten years, it's going to be a crisis that will be awesome. And you'll be hearing, well, no one saw this coming. Many, many pension funds, public and private, their rules prevent them from investing in securities that would return a lot. And yet, what they are guaranteeing as defined benefits is far more than what those low-yield investments could possibly earn. And so there is going to be a crisis. These pension funds are going to just go, we can't pay you anymore, which is why I'm not going to retire. I don't want to eat cat food for the rest of my life if these things buckle. But if you haven't heard much about it yet, but I guarantee you, it's going to be spectacular five to ten years when these funds begin to buckle because they're paying out more than they have 
that they've earned over the lifetime of, pen, of uh, pension premiums. Okay, life insurance companies. They are a monster, an 800-pound gorilla. Let me try it this way. Yeah, you, sir, do you plan to die? Yeah. I mean, it could be tomorrow, right? You know, you could walk out of here in a train, runaway train, ding, 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 and your hamburger. You could walk across the street. Meteor could, you know, you could be what we call pay dirt. But you probably won't. Probably. You'll probably live, and you might think that I'm way overestimating it. You probably will live to be between 100 and 120 years. In your case, probably not considering the parties you've been to. Okay? I mean, you just hope that by the time you get to 60, they'll be able to grow a liver. <laughs> I should talk. <laughs> but yeah, you'll live a long time. So you see, when life insurance companies get the premiums from those they insure, they don't want those back for decades, maybe even a century. So they have to put, they got insane amounts of money that they have to invest for long haul. In other words, they have to enter capital markets as providers, surplus economic units, providing funds to all kinds of long-term investments. Life insurance companies, good examples, they will buy school bonds that are pay off over 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, they will buy government securities, governments borrowing money to cover their expenses because they don't have tax enough. They'll do that. These life insurance companies are a monster source of capital. Uh, in not just in the United States, in the developed world, life insurance companies are a literally critical to the functioning of the capital markets with how much money they put in for, to help governments cover their expenses, to help the smaller municipalities with sewerage systems, water, uh, schools, all that kind of stuff. So they are big players in the financial in the as financial institutions. Life insurance aren't uh, insurance companies aren't just about providing you with something for your bereaved relatives when you die. It's about providing massive amounts of capital to the capital markets. As a matter of fact, lots of times IBs, investment banks, will if it's a bond issue they might talk to life insurance companies about absorbing some of that uh, some of that life insurance companies have to be careful they can't be crazy with their investments they they have to you know they 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 can't throw away your money at speculative stocks or even junk bonds but even at that it's still they are great places for uh, capital now last two uh, these two. ETFs, electronically traded funds, and mutual funds. They sound like they're the same, but they're not. ETFs, let me see. The Standard Poor's 500. 
Standard Poor's 500. Let's try this. That's 500 of the largest stocks in the world. Madam, could you buy the Standard Poor's 500 portfolio? All 500 stocks? No. Oh, I mean, have you checked under your, the car seat for you know, money? Of course not. That's the whole point. You can't do it. But yes, you can. You could buy an ETF that is. It's not like. It is the Standard Poor's 500. There, it's like a shell. And within the shell are these financial managers. They're not geniuses. All they do is buy the Standard Poor's 500 and then they hold it. They adjust it. That's called portfolio control theory. As prices change, they have to rebalance the portfolio on a regular basis. But you own the S&P 500. Imagine that. You could own the whole S&P 500. Now, Imagine you decide you go into a singles bar, a finance singles bar, and you are talking to some attractive person, and you say, "Why, well, yes, I, I own a couple of shares of Uber. <laughs> You're going to go home lonely. But if you lean out, I am long the S&P 500. <laughs> In other words, you own the standard Poor's. You'll go home with a friend. No swipe left for you. Okay, there you go. You see, that's how, how big you own the whole darn world port, virtually the world portfolio. The standard Poor's 500 is about two-thirds of the entire world's market cap, for God's sake. How do you do it? That's an ETF. There are ETFs for any kind of portfolio you could imagine. Let me show you the S&P 500. SPY, the, the classic spider. You buy a share of that, you own the S&P 500. You really do. A piece, a tiny, 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 tiny piece of it. But you own it. It's a stock. You can buy it 24-7. You can trade it. You can buy more of them. Instead of trying to form a well-diversified portfolio, which literally would, realistically, you'd have to have 30 stocks to really have diversification, which we'll talk about later. But, I mean, here it is. And these managers, here's something you want to look at this. The beta. What do you see for the beta? Well, spank me Jesus. It's one. That's the world portfolio. Remember what I said? One is the market? Yeah. You own the market portfolio. Whither goes the market? You go exactly there with it. And here, you want to keep an eye on this number with ETFs and mutual funds. This is their expense ratio. This is a good one. I usually recommend no more than 0.30%. Okay, but here it is. Look at that. 0.09. This, and notice, the managers of the fund they damn well better be good because the only way they make money is if you make money. That is exactly how it works. It's an expense ratio. So there you go. You could own it. Now suppose you said, well, I, well, fat boy, I don't really want to own stocks. I'd like to be a little safer, bonds. Okay, here's one, AGG. 
This is so well known that it serves as the benchmark for every other bond portfolio. Oh, look at that. Beta of one. Oh, it's, it's got a lower expense ratio. The reason is kind of simple. Bonds are cheaper to, to actually transact than stocks. Bonds are just easy. So in managing the portfolio, it's just a high quality portfolio of pure bonds. Now what a lot of people do is they will take a, the SPY and the AGG. Let's say they think times are going to be good. So they might put 80% into the spider and then 20% into AGG. If they begin to consider the stock, the, mar the economy is getting a little dodgy, <coughs> they'll rebalance and maybe go to 35% spider, 65% AGG. I mean, you can do it in a split second with a, uh, with a uh, trading platform like TD Ameritrade, Thinkorswim. You can do this in a blink of an eye. You can shift around. So there's those. ETFs. And there's an ETF for anything. There's a Russell ETF. There's, there's even, I think, a NASDAQ ETF, for God's sake. And uh, sector ETFs, stocks only like this or that. Now, a mutual fund works, looks like it's working the same way. There's a company, though, that actually buys and sells stocks and or bonds. And then you buy an ownership piece of that mutual fund. Like suppose that the mutual fund's current price is $10. You put in $100, you own 10 units of the mutual fund itself. That's how it works. And so, and mutual funds are, you can get something, I want to do global, international. Well, there are hundreds of mutual funds for that. I want to involved in growth companies, okay? There's mutual funds for that. Healthcare companies. I want beta. I want a certain return. I want uh, last year to be uh, only a mutual fund that's had a good five-year returns. Okay, you can do that. Anything you want with mutual funds. The one caution that I would give you with mutual funds is this. Oh, goody. I unplugged my cell. The only thing I would warn you about with mutual funds, there we have what's called the load. There are high load, low load, <laughs> excuse me, low load, and then there are no load. Now a high load fund, you have to pay a steep fee to join. Well, you're getting in on special $500, and then we'll let you be in our fund. Low load, you're still paying to join the fund. No load, you just buy this mutual fund. You just buy, the, buy it. That's all. Now, if you are stupid, you'll believe that you should pay to get into a mutual fund. Yeah, that, that's just foolish. You're not going to get hardly, any, you're probably not going to get any better than you would with a no load. And there are tens of thousands. They are usually in families. Like Fidelity has a whole pile of mutual funds. You, uh, PIMCO, Investco, 
uh, has mutual, Invesco has mutual funds and ETFs, and a lot of them do. But one cool thing is if you like go into Fidelity, you can move from one mutual fund to another quite easily. So you can shift your balance, rebalance your portfolio that way. Now the last two that I'll mention, and I'll just mention them, are hedge funds and private equity. Private equity. Now hedge funds are pretty cool, but you'll probably never be involved in a hedge fund. What they do is they hedge. If a company has risks that it doesn't want to take, a hedge fund can absorb those risks. There are certain trading ways that we can trade, usually, usually using what are called derivatives, futures and options, to take away risks that a company doesn't want to have. Like a corn farmer. Corn farmers are subject to massive swings up and down in corn prices. Well, we can set up so that in years where the corn prices are low, they make money on the hedge product while they lose money on the corn. When corn prices are high, they make money on the corn, but they lose money on the hedge. So over a long period of time, every year, their income is about the same. In other words, the farmers are no longer in the business of corn prices. They're just in the business of growing corn. That's cool. Hedge funds are very cool that way. Private equity funds. You could very well be involved on the short end of a private equity fund. They are in the business of saving companies in the short run so that they can destroy them in the long run. Uh, Sears. Staples. Many companies have let private funds save them from bankruptcy only to find out that the private equity fund destroyed them in the long run. They are cruel. They are vicious. You make a lot of money. I've been thinking of making, starting one myself. They're great. So there is kind of a quick overview, quick, quote unquote, of financial institutions. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.